This is African News Tonight on The Voice of America. Hello and welcome. Welcome to African News Tonight from the English to Africa service of The Voice of America, your source for Pan-African news and world development. Sami Hayes, Wuhib in Washington, coming up on African News Tonight. But we're not trying to take sides so much as we are trying to encourage the Libyans to end their political disputes. That's David Mack, former Deputy Assistant Secretary of State and a senior fellow at the Atlantic Council on efforts to reach an agreement on making foreign fighters leave Libya. Details coming up. Also, the UN chief says rising sea levels put nearly 900 million people at risk. Tunisia's president blames price hikes and food shortages on people detained in a wave of arrests. And at least 73 migrants are presumed dead in a shipwreck off the coast of Libya. These stories and more on African News tonight. We start with our top story. Nigeria's Department of State Services has warned politicians not to publish false or harmful information in the run-up to next week's presidential election. The warning came after the ruling all-progressive Congress Party's campaign director accused the military and an opposition candidate of plotting a coup. Fact-checkers are working overtime to debunk false news ahead of the February 25th elections, as Timothy Obiezu reports from Abuja, Nigeria. The notice to politicians was contained in a statement Tuesday. The Department of State Services said political parties and their media managers must restrain from spreading misleading information during campaigns and when issuing communiques. The DSS said such information could lead to violent reactions and disrupt peace and order. The warning comes in the wake of the agency's investigation of the campaign director of the ruling All Progressives Congress, APC. Femi Fani Kayode alleged on Twitter that the opposition People's Democratic Party presidential candidate Atiku Abubakar was planning a coup d'etat. The DSS interrogated Fani Kayode Wednesday. VOA could not immediately get comments from the service on the investigation. Paul James, an elections program officer at Yaga Africa, a non-profit organization promoting democracy, says slander among political parties is not new. The DSS is investigating that and have called the person in for questioning. So we hope to see how that will end. From the Edo uh, election in 2020, Ondo election in 2020, we saw things like this. The military had come out to actually deny that, but not just that. They need to begin to do things, the kind of communication that will also inspire confidence. Fanny Coyote will report to the DSS every week until the investigation is over. On Monday, he spoke to John Lees in Abuja after being interrogated for five hours and said he regretted posting the tweet without confirmation from authorities. Nigeria is seeing a heightened spread of fake news and disinformation in a push for votes ahead of the elections. The country goes to the polls on February 25th to elect a new president with three candidates as front-runners. A Nigerian fact-checkers coalition made up of 14 newsrooms is working to curb the spread of falsehoods. 
But the coalition's Kemi Busari says it is more challenging to keep up with the trend of misinformation these days. What we notice currently is uh, a proliferation of false information, especially about the election. We also see a lot of false information about the electoral process. We, we get a lot of, like I said, we get a lot more these days, uh, a lot more false information these days. Before, I could say the average copies that come to my desk each day is about uh, two to five. But now we are having nothing less than 10 to 15 copies in a day. And of course, it's not possible for us to fact check everything. Busari says the fact checkers coalition is setting up centers in Lagos and Abuja to monitor the elections and information about the voting in real time. Timothy Yobiezu for VOA News, Abuja, Nigeria. UN Secretary General Antonio Guterres warns that rising sea levels put nearly 900 million people at risk who live in countries with low-lying coastal areas. He made his remarks yesterday at the first meeting of the Security Council on the threat to international peace and security from rising sea levels. According to the Associated Press, he said, global sea levels have risen faster since 1900 than any preceding century in the past 3,000 years. Guterres said waters will rise significantly even if global warming is limited to 1.5 degrees Celsius Among the countries at risk are Bangladesh, China, India, and the Netherlands. So are the island nations and sprawling cities including Cairo, Lagos, Maputo, New York, Shanghai, and London. Guterres said the danger could create even fiercer competition for fresh water, land, and other resources. Speaker from the Security Council meeting called for all nations to meet international commitments on climate change and finance. Abdullahi Batili, the UN envoy to Libya, announced after a meeting in Egypt that Libya's 5 plus 5 military committee of officers from both sides of the civil war has agreed on a coordination mechanism for the withdrawal of foreign forces in liaison with neighboring Sudan and Niger. However, major political obstacles face concrete moves to pull out the hundreds of foreign fighters believed to be present in Libya. Ambassador David Mack former Deputy Assistant Secretary of State and a senior fellow at the Atlantic Council, explained to VOA senior analyst Mohammed al-Shanawi the active American role in reaching the security agreement. Well, the United States, working with the United Nations Special Representative for Libya and working with our allies in Western Europe, has been trying very hard to put in place agreements among the various Libyan parties to gradually end the eruptions of violence and to make it impossible for outside elements to interfere in the Libyan political process. And a big part of that has been the 5 plus 5 agreement, which is strongly backed by the United States. We do, of course, have a longstanding relationship of military cooperation with the government in Tripoli. But we're not trying to take sides so much as we are trying to encourage the Libyans 
to end their political disputes so that they can then ramp up oil production, ramp up gas production, and become a more helpful part of the Mediterranean balance of forces. The agreement followed a meeting between U.S. Sajid Affairs to Libya, Leslie Ordman, with LNA's Commander Khalifa Haftar, and another meeting with Aqila Saleh, Speaker of the House of Representatives in Tobruk, and the presence of U.S. security and political figures at the last meeting of the 5 plus 5 military committee in CERD. How important was the U.S. involvement to reach such an agreement? Well, the United States is not opposed to Khalifa Haftar having some role to play, particularly in assuring that there will be a secure Western border for Egypt. That is Egypt's primary concern. And we would like to see the Egyptians uh, support positive political evolution in Libya and getting back to elections. And their one big concern is that there not be instability on their Western border. And it's very possible that Khalifa Haftar could be part of assuring that. But we do insist, of course, that he be under the civilian authority of a unified Libyan government, which would be headquartered in Tripoli, but it would also involve support from Aguila Sala and other political actors in eastern Libya. That was David Mack, former Deputy Assistant Secretary of State and a senior fellow at the Atlantic Council, speaking with VOA's Mohammed al-Shanawi. In the Kenyan parliament yesterday, two women, members, were kicked out of the chamber for different reasons. Senator Karen Niyamu was told by the Speaker to leave the legislative chambers for wearing a sleeveless top, which the Speaker said was in violation of parliamentary rules. On the other hand, Senator Gloria Orwoba was booted out of Parliament for wearing a white suit with a ministerial stain. She spoke with James Butty, host of VOA's Daybreak Africa, about the incident. What happened is I had my period and I had an accident and there was a fellow senator who thought that it did not carry the dignity of the house to present myself with a stain on my trousers and so they asked for the speaker to invoke a standing order that was basically going to kick me out, which the speaker did not do. What he did is he basically said, we're giving you a chance to go and change and come back. I was reading the speaker asked you to go and change into a decent outfit. What does that mean? It means that people must not know that you're having your period. And in the event that you have an accident, then you should find a way to cover it. That's the stigma which I'm trying to actually advocate against. When you say advocate against, are you doing something to change this? I have uh, come up with a motion to discuss, first of all, the issue on uh, period poverty because the lack of sanitary towels in many school-going children is what causes some of the incidences like, you know, staining your school uniform. So the motion is actually going to be on the floor of the house tomorrow. But I also have a bill that uh, is going to put a legal framework on uh, the provision of free sanitary towels to all school-going children and prisoners. Right now, there is a program that runs, but when you look at 
the legal amendments act that is there it doesn't really specify how frequent the provision of the sanitary towels is the amount of sanitary towels that they get basically um, it's all dependent on the goodwill of the government of the day and what I'm trying to do is to put up a legal framework so that it doesn't matter which government comes in but based on the constitution that we have to provide free sanitary towels to all school going children and prisoners. So Senator you were not the only person kicked out of parliament on Tuesday. We understand that Senator Nyamu was also kicked out. What's happening to the women senators? No, it's not an it's not an issue of the women senators. Uh, Senator Karen Nyamu actually was completely out of order because we have a dress code and you must not come with a sleeveless top. You have to cover your arms. The standing order actually gives a clear and straightforward uh, manner with which we have to dress. And when you look at how I was dressed, and that's why I was saying when I was called to the floor that I'm dressed based on the standing order. So there's no basis to actually say that, you know, your dress code is unethical or does not give the house the respect it deserves because what they were trying to do is actually period shame me. And people don't understand that stigma begins from small things like that. Has this happened before to male uh, senators or members of parliament? You know, what's funny actually is that the male uh, members of parliament is a bit forward, you know, shirt, tie, blazer. And then there was a time that they pushed to have traditional attire. And to be honest, we have a, a male senator who actually comes dressed in the Maasai attire and he exposes his legs, he exposes his arms, but there's a justification around it basically saying that, you know, that's a traditional attire. In fact, the other day I was telling someone, if I had to come with my traditional attire from where I come from in Kisi County, then, you know, it would completely contradict the current standing order for women where we have to cover our arms, we have to cover our chest, we have to cover so and so. So I think also that's maybe an area that needs to be looked into. If we're all going to have official wear, we should all have official wear. If there is a level of allowance to have traditional attire, for instance, what Senator Karen Nyamu was wearing today, in some different places it could pass to be a traditional attire. That was Kenyan Senator Gloria Aroba. She spoke with my colleague James Barty. You can follow African News Tonight, Daybreak Africa, and all of our VOA programs on voaafrica.com. You're listening to African News Tonight on The Voice of America. Today, as part of our Black History Month coverage, we have VOA's Ignatius Anor speaking with the head of the National Council for Negro Women. Across the United States, it's Black History Month. The theme for this year is Black Resistance. And today, we're coming to you from the premises of the National Council for Negro Women to have a chat with the president and CEO of the organization, Siobhan Alain Bradley. We're going to have a conversation on a wide range of topics. We call this the corridor of power. And the corridor of power is significant because... Those two main structures that you spoke of, the Capitol and the White House, is really where the power structure leads in our democracy in the United States. Now, the same democracy that has been responsible for the atrocities we we call slavery and, and those policies that were passed that really oppressed black Americans in this country. But for us to be in a building that had a burned mortgage by Dr. Dorothy Irene Height, she had celebrities like Oprah Winfrey's to support us and ensure that this building was secured. But by doing so, it means that we are resilient people, that we have a place in history 
This actual building is also a part of the National Registry of History. So this is a, a, an actual building that is listed as a, a, a historical site in this, in this city. And what we want to highlight about being at 633 is that this is the place that is also heading down towards the African American Museum. So there's so much connection to this actual physical space, but even more so the significance of black women power. Thank you so much, Siobhan. Let's delve into your work mm-hmm. for women of African descent, yes. their families and their communities, particularly at a time like this where yeah. the country is celebrating Black History Month. So I think there's a lot of misconceptions um, about understanding what we say when we mean women of African descent. Right. And uh, as someone who understands the context for the diaspora, for NCNW, Many don't know that we were the first black organization actually as an NGO at the United Nations. And so this opportunity to be named as an NGO, a non-governmental organization that had status at the UN, it meant that we had interface with women across the globe. But there's a special affinity for women of African descent, and particularly women that represent the continent. Because for African-American women and African women, there is a connection we don't always talk about it, we don't always engage in it, but the NCNW has been committed to it. We focus on issues like uh, access to hygiene products, for opportunities for women in business, where we have entrepreneurs that are able to engage in other countries. Dorothy Height was one of the first women that actually traveled to Ghana, to Kenya, uh, to be able to engage in support missions around healthcare for women, uh, women who were having children. So there has been a historical alignment between NCNW and women of African descent, but I'm here to tell you there's a new commitment. We are now in preparing ourselves for the International Day for Women. We are preparing ourselves to re-engage on the UN. And one of our major focuses is around clean water, an issue that crosses not only United States lines, but also lines as we think about our sisters on the continent of Africa. That was my colleague Ignatius Anor interviewing uh, Siobhan Arlene Bradley, the president and CEO of the National Council for Negro Women. They spoke in her office in our council's headquarters in Washington, D.C. That building is believed to be the only black-owned office building in the heart of the U.S. Capitol. The United Nations says at least 73 migrants are presumed dead in a shipwreck off the coast of Libya. The International Center for Migration says so far seven survivors have been found and 11 bodies retrieved after a boat carrying 80 people left for Europe from Qasr al-Qayyan, about 75 kilometers east of the capital Tripoli. According to the French news agency AFP, more than 17,000 deaths and disappearances have been recorded in attempted crossings off the central Mediterranean since 2014. Cameroon's health ministry has dismissed a report of two suspected cases of Marburg virus in the country after a first deadly outbreak in neighboring Equatorial Guinea. Health officials along the border said Tuesday there were two suspected cases of the severe hemorrhagic fever in Cameroon after Malabo confirmed nine deaths and 16 possible infections. Despite dismissing the reported cases, Cameroon's health ministry says it is increasing surveillance and travel restrictions along the border. Moki Edwin Kinzeka reports from Yaoundé, Cameroon. 
Health Minister Manauda Malashi says Cameroon does not yet have any suspected cases of the Marburg virus, despite reports of two possible infections. Health officials in Cameroon's south region on Tuesday said a teenage boy and girl suffering from high fever were rushed to a hospital Monday in Olamze on the border with Equatorial Guinea. The health officials said the children were suspected of being infected with the Marburg virus, are in isolation and are responding to treatment. But Malashi seemed to contradict those reports when he spoke Wednesday to state broadcaster Cameroon Radio Television. Malashi says the decision by Cameroon to stop Marburg virus and illness like Ebola by restricting movement along the border with Equatorial Guinea is so far yielding fruit. He says as of Wednesday at midday, Central African time, Cameroon had not yet reported any deaths or suspected cases of Marburg virus. La Malashi says civilians should avoid contact with animals and people who have traveled to Equatorial Guinea and make sure people with fever, fatigue, and blood stains, vomit, and diarrhea are isolated. But Malashi warned its porous border with Equatorial Guinea, which confirmed Monday its first outbreak of the deadly virus, puts it at risk. Cameroon last week said it restricted movement along the border after Equatorial Guinea quarantined hundreds of people in Kentem province where the hemorrhagic fever was first reported. The World Health Organization says Equatorial Guinea sent samples to the Pasteur Institute in Senegal after an alert by a health official on February 7, and one of them tested positive. The WHO says Marburg was transmitted to people from fruit bats, spread between people via bloody fluids, and has a fatality rate of up to 88%. Marburg is in the same family as the Ebola virus, but unlike Ebola, there are no vaccines for Marburg, just treatments from the symptoms such as dehydration and fever. Health officials from Cameroon and Gabon, which also shares borders with Equatorial Guinea, met Tuesday in Yaoundé and agreed to work together to prevent the virus from spreading. University of Yaoundé sociology lecturer Francois Bingona Bingona was in the meeting. He says the frequent movement of people across the borders will make stopping the virus a challenge. Bingona says in 2020, Cameroon and Equatorial Guinea restricted movement along their border to protect their populations from COVID-19, but civilians on both sides did not respect the order. He says people living on both sides of the Cameroon-Equatorial Guinea border belong to the same ethnic groups, speak the same language, and celebrate happy events or mourn such events together. Bingona says health workers not known in border communities are struggling to educate locals that a deadly virus threatens their lives. He says they will need traditional rulers to help convince their people. The U.S. Centers for Disease Control and Prevention says the virus was first identified in 1967 in simultaneous outbreaks in laboratories in Marburg 
and Frankfurt, Germany, and in Belgrade. Marburg is not new to Africa, but is relatively new to West Africa. An outbreak in Ghana in September last year killed two people, while Guinea recorded one death from the virus in 2021, the first known case in West Africa. The WHO reported previous outbreaks in Angola, the Democratic Republic of Congo, Kenya, South Africa, and Uganda. Moki Edwin Kinzaka for VOA News, Yaoundé, Cameroon. And that wraps up this edition of African News Tonight. I'm Yehia Suhib in Washington. For all the latest development on the continent 24-7, visit our website at voaafrica.com. On behalf of our producer, Bokwilia Barrow, and our engineer, Nelson Lopes, thanks for choosing the Voice of America.